Good morning again, and happy Mother's Day to everybody. I always love Mother's Day because you get to see so many faces you haven't seen in a while. And then on Father's Day, you don't see any faces. And so, mothers, thank you for your faithfulness in ensuring your family's faithfulness. But it is a happy Mother's Day, and we're glad that you're with us. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Breathing Room. And if you uh, have missed the last couple of weeks or you are back because of Mother's Day, this is something that we've been talking about, about the importance of breathing room in our life. Because the way that our world works and the way that our lives work is that our lives pick up speed and our lives get busier and busier and fuller and fuller in all of these different categories. And we end up in a place where our life is so stressful, primarily because we don't have any breathing room. And this is the definition of breathing room that we've been using for the last couple of weeks. The space between our load and our limits. So you can thin slice any section or area of your life, and this will be true. When you don't have breathing room in your schedule, life starts to get stressful because there's no space between what's on your calendar and the white space in your calendar. When your calendar is just colored, you know that, uh-oh, this is going to be a tough week. You already say it to yourself. What do you got today? Uh-oh, this is going to be a busy day. And you know to start preparing yourself for the stress that comes because you don't have any breathing room in your schedule. This is true for all of the other areas. We talked about our relationships and what happens when we jump from one thing to the next and we move through all of these friend groups and we're connected but we're not really invested and the stress that that causes us and the lack of connection that that leaves us with. And today we're going to talk about another area where we really, really need breathing room. And to start, uh, I want to talk about probably the most dangerous place in the world. This is something that uh, I want to warn you against. You need to prepare yourself both physically, psychologically, and even spiritually um, for the dangers of this location right here. Uh, For men, if you don't know, this is Target. Guys, let me introduce you to Target. This is Target. This is where your wives and daughters spend some of their time. This is Target. This is the most dangerous store in America, I'm convinced, because you always leave with more than you came in needing or wanting. Now, before I got married, I went to Target about twice a year. Uh, And I would buy all of the toilet paper and the paper towels that I would need for half of the year. And then when it was time to go back, I would go back and then buy more. And then I got married and then I realized that I now go to Target like once or twice a week. They welcome me by name. And I am learning that the more time that you spend in Target, the more that it warps your soul. You begin to start to walk the aisles that you don't need anything on. You're like, well, I wonder if I see anything down this aisle. Ooh, that's nice. And then I start sending photos to my wife. Hey, do we need this? Do we... It happens to us. And it's not just Target. We all have our stores. We all have our places we go. Maybe it's social media for you, but you browse and you search and you scan and you find all of these things that, if we're being honest, we want, but we don't really need. Now, this I find so fascinating. This is actually a new phenomenon. So if you kind of dial the clock back 100 years ago, In 1902, they did some studies and found that the average family spent 20% of their income on non-necessities. Do you know what it is in 2023? It has tripled. 60% of our income on non-necessities. That's a huge jump. 
for those of you who aren't math majors. That's a, that's a big, that's really big. That, like this should be like warning red flag. In fact, uh, the aggregate debt in the U.S., we're now at 17 trillion. That's just consumer debt. We have a problem with our spending. And I, I want to let us off the hook a little bit at first because this isn't something that is just a, kind of a, a, a defect of human nature. This is something that has been exploited over time. So uh, I, I love the rabbit hole conspiracy theories. Um, that's, this isn't actually a conspiracy theory. This is just actual conspiracy that has transformed into a reality in our lives. So around about the turn of World War I in the 1920s, we had all of these factories who were creating all of these things that were needed for the war. And then when the war was over, we needed something to do with those factories. And so the leaders of business and the policymakers of government and the madmen of New York City all conspired together to shift American culture away from a needs-based culture to a wants-based consumer culture. Now, this was written in 1927. This is Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers. He was a, kind of one of the early PR specialists. This is what he has to say. He says, any community that lives on staples has relatively few wants. We must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. I'd say they got it right. Yeah? I mean, mission accomplished. Our desires overshadow our needs. And it doesn't matter what your desires are. They're always in excess of our needs. This is just kind of the way that we know how to operate in the world. Think about the stories and the examples that you have with your children at Christmas. Yeah? They open up their presents. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm so. And then they either ask the question, what is it? Or they like throw it aside and move on to the... Like we are just trained from an early age to consume and consume and consume. Not because we need, but because we desire and we long for. Here's another. Charles Kettering, he was the director of research for General Motors. Uh, he said this in the 20s about how to shape the American economy. The key to economic prosperity is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Here's what I think is unbelievable about this. Not only did they do this, they wrote about it. They like published this in journals and magazines related to marketing and to economics. They just told us what they were going to do, and then they went and did it. The key to economic prosperity is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. And this is, this is precisely what advertising is, right? You see a future reality or a future ideal state, this aspirational kind of picture of what you want your life to look like, and you realize that in some category or way, your life doesn't look like that. It could be as small as a pair of shoes, to a house, to a vacation, to a car, to clothing or jewelry. It doesn't matter home goods. It doesn't matter what it is. But you realize that if you could have that, you would be happier than you are now. Yeah? 
that if your life looked like that life, then you would finally have a better life. And this is what all of the images do. They convince us that there is some deficit in our life. And in fact, if you really want to kind of rabbit hole this conspiracy, they took some of the early research done by Sigmund Freud. And his nephew actually conspired with the Nazis to create some of the Nazi propaganda. They took that same like mechanisms that work in the human brain and in the human psychology to modify modern day advertising. Because they prey on two desires that all humans have. Fear and desire. I want or I'm afraid of. And sometimes they merge them together to create this reality where you need this thing, otherwise this thing is going to happen, right? If you were with us a couple weeks ago, I showed this example of the couch and this woman who desperately needed to rest on the couch. And so she just collapses face down on this couch. Well, this is blending both of those. You need rest. And if you don't have this couch, you won't get any rest. And you'll constantly be worn out and exhausted your whole life. So buy this couch. I actually had somebody come up to me after the service a couple weeks ago like, I have that couch. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I won't identify that individual, but I was like, this is perfect. Of course somebody here has that couch. But here, here's the lie and here's the myth that kind of undergirds all of modern advertising and undergirds kind of the way that we live our life caught in this consumeristic mentality. And it's this lie that our standard of living equals our quality of life. Our standard of living equals our quality of life. If you want a better quality of life, if you want a higher quality of life, what is the way to get it? Just raise your standard of living. Buy things, spend more money, borrow money to spend more money, go into debt, Extend margin so that you can have more because if you can just raise your standard of living, if you can get that new bathroom or that new job or that new jacket, then your life's going to be better. Your standard of living equals your quality of life. This is what all advertising is based on. Now, the problem is, if we're being honest and if we think about it for a second, this actually isn't true. Let's go back in time. I want you to think back, for those of you who have a working income right now, think about 10 years ago. You believed this was true, didn't you, back then? And you make more now, most likely, than you did back then. And you thought, well, if I can just raise my standard of living, it'll increase my quality of life, right? Whether it was five years ago or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. For some of us, it was even longer. And some of us, were in a place now where we make more than we ever imagined that we would make. And yet, for some reason, it hasn't really made a difference in our quality of life. And this is because we spend and we spend and we spend trying to raise our standard of living. But because of the effects of increasing our standard of living over and over and over, despite making more and more and more, there's never any breathing room. You get a raise, it just increases your spending capacity. You change careers, you get a better job, guess what? Now you can ha afford a different level of rent than you did previously. We always try to raise our standard of living. 
when our income raised, when we make more money, when we earn more money, we just keep ratcheting up our standard of living. Think about the types of clothes that you wore when you were just starting to work in your 20s. If you're 5, 10, 20 years removed from that, my guess is you spend more on your clothes now than you did back then. Why? Are they inherently better? No. You just got more money to spend on clothes. That's the only thing that's changed. The same is true for our cars and our houses and any other category of discretionary spending we want to examine. The more we make, the more we spend because we still believe that our standard of living equals our quality of life. But the pursuit of a higher standard of living to try to capture a higher quality of life is actually making all of us miserable. I don't know about your financial situation, but for those of us who have really thin margins, you know how stressful it is. You know what it feels like to go from minimum payment to minimum payment to minimum payment, and you play the Rob Peter to pay Paul game with the credit cards. Like, oh, this one has the free loan transfer, and so I'm going to move money from this credit card over to this. It's like playing like, like the floor is lava game when you were a kid. Like you're jumping from credit card to credit card because you know that if you stop moving, it's like a house of cards, and it's all going to come collapsing in on you. You know what it feels like at the end of the month to look at your bank account statement and go, I don't know how the math's going to work. Like, looks like we're eating peanut butter and jelly tonight. For those of you that remember balancing a checkbook, you know sometimes you just have to close the checkbook because of where the math was going. It was like you could just see zero and then negative approaching. And then you get into the place where you hardly have any money and then you spend more money than you have. And so then the bank charges you more money because you spent more money than you have. And now you have even less money. And you're like, now we're going the way wrong direction. And you end up with a significantly negative account balance because you made five, $6 purchases that they charged you $25 each for. And now I'm just a hypothetical example. I've never lived this but we're caught in this. And so no matter how high our standard of living is, it actually doesn't translate to quality of life. And in fact, studies show this, that 75K is about the threshold. Now, when you move from poverty out of poverty, there's a big difference. That's where standard of living and quality of life have some correlation. But once you're out of poverty, it disappears. And in fact, it starts to show the inverse being true, that the more money you have, the more stressful your life seems. And even for those of us that have a little bit of financial margin, you know this. The things that you spend and the money that you use to buy new things requires more effort and energy to maintain. That's why you have sayings like, the only thing better than a boat is a friend with a boat, right? Because of all of the upkeep that's required to take care of the thing that you bought. So you can have the money to buy the thing, but then it starts to require time, effort, and energy to take care of the stuff. And so the more stuff we have, the more that we're just spending our lives keeping up with all of our stuff. Here's another quote for you. This is from Greg Easter book. And he wrote a, a book called The Progress Paradox. And this is what he says. He says, adjusting for population growth. Ten times as many people in the Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression or unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause. 
than did half a century ago. Ten times as many people today suffer from unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause than did half a century ago. And in his conclusion, Americans and Europeans have ever more of everything except happiness. We have ever more of everything except happiness. You can't buy your way into happiness. We all know miserable rich people. We all know that when we weren't where we are now, wanting to be where we are now, we thought life would be better where we are now just because of how much more we made or more we had. And then you get to where you are now and you realize it actually doesn't change. The margins remain thin and small and life is stressful and hard because we don't, we don't recognize that our standard of living doesn't equal our quality of life. We believe that we can buy our way into a higher quality of life. And if this was true, then the richest people would be the happiest people. And every time you got a raise, your life would become immeasurably better. But that doesn't happen. We know it doesn't happen. In fact, sometimes what do we think? Oh, I wish we could just go back to back when we didn't have two nickels to rub together, right? Sometimes we have this longing for this previous state when life was simpler and easier and less cumbersome and less restricted because of all that we had. Now, we like the salary. We want to keep that, but we long for simplicity because somewhere in all of that simplicity, even though we can't name it, there was a quality of life that we valued and appreciated that we've lost sight of because of all of the desire to acquire The only way, the only way, the only way, the only way. We don't always deal in absolutes here, but the only way to increase your quality of life, it's not through increasing your standard of living, it's by increasing your breathing room, by increasing the financial margin that you have in your life. As it relates to money, and as it relates to our consumer mentality, the only way to increase your quality of life is to have a little bit of breathing room, to have a little bit of space, to be freed from the worry and the anxiety and the stress of do we have enough or how do we get more? Because it's not just about will, will we be able to pay our bills? It's not always about that. But it's this kind of never-ending desire of never-ending dissatisfaction with your current state of life. It's recognizing that like I'm just dissatisfied and so the way out of this dissatisfaction is to to buy something. We call it retail therapy because we're convinced that if we can just get enough of the right stuff, then we'll finally have the quality of life we want. We'll finally be happy. We'll finally be satisfied. And this is exactly what they want us to do. It's just fuel the economy. Keep buying, keep spending, keep shopping, keep clicking, keep deferring payments till later. Around and around and around we go not doing it for our benefit and our quality of life. There's nothing benevolent about this system. It's designed to exploit and to manipulate. It's all fueled by greed. Now, a couple people a long time ago saw all of this coming. They recognize the temptation 
that lies in the human heart to purchase and consume and to acquire, to try to guarantee quality of life. And so the Apostle Paul was writing to one of his apprentices named Timothy. And Paul was kind of riffing on some of Jesus' teachings about money, of which 25% of everything Jesus taught was about money, which means it's important and it's significant, not that money is bad, but that it's dangerous if you don't steward it well, if you don't pay attention to the power that it has on your life, and even more importantly, the power that it has on your heart. And so Paul begins to kind of give Timothy some instruction that Timothy is supposed to share with the church that he's leading. And this is what Paul says. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, he just, he, he just calls it. He predicts it. If you want to be rich... They risk falling into temptation and are trapped by foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We all know someone who has purchased their way into a mess through a series of poor discipline and uncontrolled desire. They end up in financial situations that sometimes it takes them decades to get out of. They've fallen into a trap. They bought into the temptation through foolish and harmful desires that haven't been checked and regulated. They haven't paid attention to the financial breathing room that they have in their life. And this is what happens. Answer it and tell them. <laughs> and this is, where, this is where this very quotable bumper sticker coffee mug quote comes from that we sometimes get wrong. And then he goes on to say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money. It's not money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not bad. It's a tool. It's how you use it that matters. The love of money. The uncontrolled desire for more and more money because you believe somewhere that if you can increase your standard of living, you'll increase your quality of life. That's the problem. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their desire to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. If unchecked, our desire to increase our standard of living will take us away from our Christian values and principles. We will ignore Jesus' teachings on money and how we should be good stewards of what God has given us because we care more about gaining and acquiring to try to raise our quality of life. And Paul says, when you do this, it's like piercing yourself with many pains. This is self-inflicted wounds. Very few of us have financial difficulties that were caused by forces outside of our control, if we're being real honest. I'm sure there are some, but in general, broad strokes. When we find ourselves with no financial margin, with no breathing room, we've done it to ourselves. We haven't paid attention. We've let our desires go unchecked. And so this is what he says. He says, here's what you got to watch out against. Here's what you need to do. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. The hope in wealth is based on the belief that your standard of living equals your quality of life. 
My quality of life is guaranteed. Everything is going to be okay because of my current standard of living or my perceived future standard of living. And let me tell you, I've had lots of meetings and stood in lots of funerals with lots of rich people who their money couldn't fix the problems that they were experiencing. It's not a magic wand. It is a useful tool, sure. Would we all love more of it? Of course. It's not a magic cure. And Paul says you have to watch out for placing your hope and your trust in it. Because it is so uncertain. And the most important things in our life, it doesn't impact at all. And he goes on. He says, but they need to put their hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Goes on. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You can't do this. You can't fulfill this command if you have no financial breathing room. It's impossible. The money's already spent. There's nothing left over. There's no ability to live into the commands of how to use our money well if we don't create financial breathing room. And then he ends with this. He says, in this way, when they do good, are rich in good deeds, are generous and willing to share, this is the outcome. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How do you raise the quality of your life? How do you experience life that is truly life? It's through financial breathing room. And by living into the commands that Paul has given us and given Timothy. So there's a couple of little first steps that I want to give you. There's a lot of advice in the world about how to steward your money well. There are lots of good instructions and manuals to how to change your financial situation. This will not address all of your specific situations. But this is kind of a broad category. If you need a place to start, if you want to think through how to begin to do this well, here are a couple of practices that you can begin to start with. The first one is to know your numbers. Or do you know what you spend, where you spend, and how much you spend? In all of the places, do you even have your arms around your financial circumstances and situation? You can't get any further until you know all of the numbers. How much do you spend on rent or mortgage? How much do you spend on pay monthly payments for cars or whatever you may do? How much is your discretionary spending? How much do you spend on food? How much is miscellaneous? You have to know all of your numbers. How much are you saving? How much are you giving? If you're doing either of those two things, where is your money going? You've got to know your numbers. The next one's my favorite. Start a payment plan. Start a payment plan. And you're like, I have no idea what that is. A payment plan is to start to insert a little prayer into how and where you spend your money. Have you ever stopped to pray before you made a purchase? Have you ever stopped to pray and to invite God's discernment into your life around a large investment or a large purchase for your family or a major financial decision? What would it look like to actually begin to invite the Holy Spirit into your budget? All right, God, here are our numbers. 
Here's how much we bring in. Here's how much is going out. What should this look like? How could we be good stewards of what we have? How could we be rich in good deeds? How can we increase our ability to be generous? God, speak to us. God, we're going to pray over our finances and invite you to instruct how we should steward them. This is a tool that you've given us. Show us how to use this well. And then the last one is to budget for breathing room. Now, this is a starting place. Some of you are going to balk at this. Some of you are going to say, no way. For others of you, you're like, yeah, we could probably do this. I think this is the goal. This is the goal for all of us. Here's what the budget could look like. And this is the order in which it should be funded, in my opinion. It's also biblical. Give 10%. That invisible army that I have behind me of scripture, right? Give 10%. For some of you, you're like, that feels impossible. Without breathing room, it will be. Give 10%. Save 15%. Now, your current financial advisor might guide you to a different savings percentage. It's just a starting place. Create 5% breathing room. And then live on the remaining 70%. Now, I know what's happening in your heads. You're saying if we actually did this, we couldn't live where we live, our kids couldn't go to the schools that they go to, and we'd have to make significant and lasting financial decisions in, your, in our lives. Maybe. 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 But if you want more peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment in life, I'm telling you this is the way. It's not this legalistic, it has to be these percentages. But this is where we need to move towards as a people and as a church. The issue in our world with all of the needs that we have is not a lack of resources. It's not. The solution isn't trying to create more money. Even though that's our temptation when we find ourselves in these places without any breathing room, that we always default to the solution. Ah, we don't need to do this. I just need to earn more. I need to get a second job or I need to create this new investment solution. We just got to earn more and then we can get to this place. What if you start here, actually? What would happen in your life if you were like, okay, first 10%? Or as you build up to the first 10%, I'm going to give that away. This is what we're going to have to be generous with. And then we're going to save the next 15%. We're going to put it away for retirement, for our kids' college funds, however you want to allocate your savings, for a rainy day, for crisis, whatever. We're going to leave 5% margin because you never know. Wealth is so uncertain. We already heard Paul name it. And then the last. And we're going to figure out what it looks like to live on the 70%. Will there be short-term changes in your life? Yep, there will be. Will it feel uncomfortable? Yes. Will it decrease your standard of living? Probably so. But guess what it's going to do? Your quality of life? It will. It will. If you do this and your quality of life doesn't increase, come find me and I will publicly apologize to you. I'm serious. This works. This works. And the people that I know who live this way, 
They have peace when it comes to their finances. And they have joy in their life because they are able to be generous. I have never met an unhappy, generous person. Never, ever, ever. I have never met a miserable, generous person. And I've met lots of miserable, rich people. They're not the same thing. Our standard of living does not equal our quality of life. When we steward our finances the way that God would would have us, when we're able to create breathing room so that we can be generous and so that we can have a proper relationship with money, then we experience the life that is truly life. And that's what I want for all of us. Let me pray for our time together this morning, and then we'll pass the offering baskets around a couple times, and then uh, (laughs) we'll sing one more song. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about money, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it gets under our skin, even when it convicts us and bothers us. But God, we know that you have a life for us that is full of life. So God, help us to move towards it. Help us to change the way that we think about what we have and what we make and what we spend. Help us to kind of let go of our need for more, to trust that you are the source of enough. And when we create breathing room in our life, we experience the life that is truly life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.